Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. We're digging deep into flooding buyout programs. I partnered with the Natural Resources Defense Council, and we delved into the vital role of buyouts in tackling flood damage from climate change. We'll kick it off with Anna Weber from NRDC to give us some background and why they want agencies like FEMA to learn and benefit from their buyout program experiences. Also joining the pod are reps from Climigration Network and the Nature Conservancy who give us background on some of the workshops that focused on how to improve the buyout process. Also, a resident from Lake Charles, Louisiana, shares her personal buyout journey and the challenges she could confronted and also offering firsthand guidance for others who might have to do a buyout. It was a hair-pulling experience for her, literally. We'll also hear from the group Wetlands Watch who'll share Norfolk, Virginia's sea level rise struggles and their efforts at innovative buyout funding. Finally, a flood mitigation manager near Charlotte, North Carolina will explain their long history and success with the buyout program. This episode has some fantastic resources for buyouts, which will increasingly play a critical role as we adapt to climate change. Okay, let's kick things off with Anna Weber from the Natural Resources Defense Council. Hey, Adapters. Joining me is Anna Weber. Anna is a senior policy analyst on NRDC's climate adaptation team. Hi, Anna. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. All right. We've been working on this episode together for a while, but now bringing you on, we're going to give some background as we head into talking about some of these guests that I've interviewed that you've recruited. But let's start off with what do you do there at NRDC? So my role on our climate adaptation team is, like you said, I'm a policy analyst. That doesn't really mean that much to most people. But basically what I do is I think about ways that we can change policy for a better outcome. And specifically in my case, I think a lot about the effects of flooding from climate change, for example, sea level rise or extreme rainfall, and how we can make federal policies create better outcomes for people who are affected by flooding and then prevent the effects of flooding in any way that we can. I just, I'm making an assumption here, but can you just give a really brief description of NRDC for folks who aren't even familiar with the organization? Yeah. So NRDC is an international environmental organization. And so we do a lot of different kinds of advocacy for all sorts of different kinds of environmental and climate issues, everything from wildlife conservation to trying to shift the world's economy away from fossil fuels. And then my area, which is climate adaptation. So we're here to talk about buyouts. Let's give people a little bit of background on that. We're going to talk in a little bit about some of the workshops and the specific work you're doing, but let's just generally, can you give us the lay of the land? What is a buyout and why are these things important? So a buyout is a tool that we can use to reduce the harms of flooding, essentially. In a situation where you're living in a repeatedly flooded neighborhood, someplace where maybe the road floods every time that it rains, and your home has been subject to flooding over and over and over again, one of your options should be to be able to leave and move someplace else, move someplace safer if that's what you want to do. And buyouts are a tool that let us do that. Basically, the way that it works on paper is pretty simple. Usually there's government funding of some kind, often from a federal grant. That grant money allows usually a local government to buy somebody out to purchase a repeatedly flooded home. 
so that the residents of that home can take the money and they can find an alternative place to live, someplace hopefully that's a lot safer from the effects of flooding. Then the home is demolished. The land reverts to publicly owned space. There's typically some sort of requirement that says nothing can be built on that land anymore. It has to stay as a form of publicly owned open space, whether that's to be used for some sort of stormwater management, maybe some kind of green infrastructure or a park or some other kind of public benefit. The idea is that you've removed the risk to people who are living on that piece of land because nobody is living there anymore, and also that the land can provide benefit to the people who remain in the community. So why did NRDC decide to focus on buyouts? There's a lot of different tools out there when you're talking about flooding. There's, you know, the toolkit, but you guys have invested a lot of intellectual energy into the buyout issue. Why was it attractive to you as something to work on? Yeah, well, that process I just described, that's how buyouts work on paper. And in reality, they're way more complicated than that. They often take years, if not decades, from the date of a disaster to the time when a homeowner is actually able to close on their property and move away. They often lead to inequitable outcomes because our risks of flooding are not distributed equally across our communities. And the values of people's homes are often declining in areas that are facing repeated flooding. And that means that the amount of money that's available to buy somebody out might not be the enough money for them to actually move to someplace safer. And so in a way, they kind of encapsulate a lot of the questions that we're facing with climate adaptation more broadly. And so NRDC is interested in thinking about how can we make buyouts better? We're not saying everybody should be considering a buyout. And if you ask me, I think the best buyout is one that never has to happen. But in cases where communities are thinking about buyouts and people are thinking about relocation, how can we set these projects up for success in a way that they actually benefit both the people who are participating and the broader communities where they live? I know part of the work that you're doing here, you're just not doing it just as a mental exercise, but FEMA, this relates to a lot of what FEMA is doing. And so this process, these workshops that you're doing, and just this education that you're, you're trying to do, you want FEMA to be aware of these things, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's a primary goal of our work here. So a lot of people have been researching buyouts over the past few years. This has become a really exciting area of research, but a lot of the time people will do a study and they'll point out all of the problems with existing buyout programs. And there's a lot of them. There are so many challenges in this area, but there's not that many discussions that are happening right now about concrete solutions. And so our idea was to pick up where other research has left off and say, okay, there's a lot of ideas floating around out here about how we could make buyouts better, but what would it actually mean to do that and put it into practice? And so we wanted to get recommendations and perspectives from people who interact with buyouts in different ways, whether it's professionally through their jobs or whether it's as a resident of a repeatedly flooded neighborhood who might have gone through a buyout themselves. What would it take to make these changes that people are talking about in order to put buyouts sort of in a better position to benefit communities? FEMA could obviously learn from this process, but one of your approaches to this was like finding partners, right? It's just not NRDC. I mean, you, you're working with a lot of groups to make this happen, right? Yeah, absolutely. So specifically what we did is over the course of about a year, we hosted two sets of workshops, one with people who have learned experience or professional experience with buyout programs. And those might be folks from local, state, federal governments or conservation organizations, people who interact with buyouts in their professional capacity. We also 
worked with a set of people who have interacted with buyouts in their personal capacity, people with learned experience who have personally gone through this buyout process as a member of their neighborhoods. And so to do that, we didn't obviously want to just go in alone. And so we partnered with a really great team, including the Climate Migration Network, the Nature Conservancy, a fabulous professional facilitator that we've worked with in the past named Carrie Hewlett. And we really worked sort of across our networks to recruit really geographically broad and diverse set of participants in both of our workshops. So we're going to wrap this up here. I'm going to get you back on at the end of the episode, and we're going to dig a little bit further, but we're going to hear a lot more about the workshops from some of the guests that were recruited for this episode. So can you give us a primer on who I'll be talking to? Yeah. So we wanted to make sure that you heard from a range of perspectives from the folks who've participated in our workshops. So you're going to be hearing from two participants in our practitioners workshop, Tim Troutman from Charlotte Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, and Mary Carson Stiff, who's from Wetlands Watch based in southeastern Virginia. You're also going to be hearing from Tremika Rankins, who is a resident of Lake Charles, Louisiana, and was a participant in our buyout participants workshops because she's actually gone through a buyout herself. And you're also going to be hearing from a couple members of our project team, Kristen Marcel from the Climigration Network and Shamika Hansen from the Nature Conservancy. All right. Fantastic. Okay, Anna, I'm going to let you go, but you're going to come back at the end of the episode and we're going to just wrap things up. I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks. Hey, Adapters. Joining me is Kristen Marcel and Shamika Hansen. Shamika is a community protection specialist at the Nature Conservancy based in New York State. Kristen is the director of the Cly Migration Network. Hi, Kristen and Shamika. Welcome to the podcast. How you doing? Hello. I've got a couple of you on and this is going to be fun, but let's first start off with you, Shamika. Tell me what you do there at the Nature Conservancy. Yeah. So for those who aren't familiar with the Nature Conservancy, we're the largest land conservation organization in the world. We're found in 70 plus countries and our, our mission is to protect the lands and waters of which all life on earth depends. And here in New York, I work on our climate adaptation team where we're helping communities tackle and adapt to various climate change issues here in our state that mainly focuses on flooding, both in riverine and coastal areas. Great. And Kristen, tell us about the network. What do you do there? Yes. So I'm the director of the Climigration Network. We are 100 plus members from all over the United States and some even in Canada. We bring both lived and learned expertise to this work. And our goal is to create community-led approaches to relocation. We have lived experts from community-based organizations and from tribes across the United States and people who are trained in policy, law, planning, research, communications, who are interested in serving communities that are having to face this difficult choice of considering relocation from places that they love. Kristen, I'm going to stick with you. We're here to talk about these buyouts and you guys were involved with some workshops and I got some questions related to that for both of you, but can you just ground us? What were these workshops? There was more than one, right? What were they all about? What were you hoping to accomplish with those? So these workshops were an opportunity to hear from both buyout program managers and program designers and the people who in the government who are implementing these programs, as well as residents who have gone through buyout programs 
in communities around the country. And one of the things that's really unique about this project, as far as we know, it's the first time that anyone has ever spoken to residents as a group about their experience going through the buyout process. And it was a great opportunity to find out whether the experiences of residents and how they would change the buyout program aligns with the experiences of program managers and what they would do to change the program. So it was a great opportunity to see whether those recommendations might be in the same frame and the kinds of things that we could move forward with because there's a lot of support for them. That's really interesting, having those two different perspectives. So Shamika, not that you can remember names or maybe you can, but tell us a bit about the the resident people that participated. Like, where were they coming from? I mean, was it a pretty diverse group? Yes. So the residents that we spoke with were coming from all across the country. We spoke to people in states from New York, New Jersey, Washington, Louisiana, Texas. We tried to get a nice makeup of various participants from across the country that had been in a different variety of programs. So both voluntary and some were involuntary. And I would imagine with this workshop, people were impacted by flooding. And then there's this larger issue of climate change. And Shamika, I'm just going to stay with you here. Is that was that really brought up much in the workshop? Or was that just not a concern that you guys focused on? Or I mean, just how did that play out? The focus of the workshop really was around their experience. Most people that we spoke to, if not all that we spoke to in this workshop, had experienced a buyout due to flooding or receiving, being in an area that receives flooding fairly frequently. And so many of the people that we were speaking to were sort of coming with that issue that they had experienced in the past. In regard to the conversation specific to climate change, I think many of the folks that we were speaking to in these workshops had an understanding that these issues are pervasive and are something that they're probably going to be seeing further out into the future. And so while that wasn't the sort of main driver of the conversation, it definitely came up as one of the concerning issues, particularly as we think about communities going into the future. All right, Kristen. So I know that there were specific outputs and we'll get to those, but I'm curious more about being there at the workshop. What were some of the challenges that these residents brought up with you guys? Because I'm sure it was kind of free form at first before you start directing them into like, okay, we need these specific things from you. Yeah, well, the most important challenge was building trust and relationship with the residents who agreed to participate in this project. This is not an easy ask. There is a remarkable spirit of generosity among people who have experienced flooding, who've gone through buyouts, an interest in supporting other people who might have to go through this themselves. But it's still not an easy conversation. And even though we really prepared to have trauma-informed conversations. It was still a very, these are very, very difficult conversations. And we couldn't eliminate all of the trauma that they might experience in telling their stories. And trauma can sneak up on you. You might be feeling okay. You might be beginning to share your story, but then you're completely overwhelmed with emotions you don't expect. So it was amazing that this group was so brave and resilient to be a part of this project. 
but it was a challenge to do it safely. And I think a challenge for everyone to be experiencing this pain so directly with one another. Okay. So Shamika, you shared some notes with me and I thought this was really interesting. And Kristen was just getting at this too, with the trauma and such, but there's this emotional experience for people. How did that manifest itself within the actual workshop? So Kristen mentioned the trauma, but were people just sharing their fears during the flooding events or was it more about the buyouts? I've spoken to someone about buyouts and they talked about pulling out their hair, just going through that process. And so there seems like there's two sources of trauma for people who have to go through this. Yeah. You know, during our workshops, we really wanted to create a space of connection and trust among the participants. And so one of the very first things we did was ask everyone to share their own individual personal story and experience, however they so chose. And one of the things we offered was for the participants to share photos and images from those experiences, whichever ones they wanted to. And I think for many people, having to relook at those pictures was sort of this visceral reminder of what they'd gone through, the places that they left, what they left behind potentially, who they potentially left behind. I think it's something that many people hadn't thought about once they were removed from that situation. And so seeing those pictures again, you know, I think it sparked something within folks that was just a reminder of some tough things that they went through. And as Kristen mentioned, a lot of times you don't realize you're going to sort of have that reaction or go through that in the moment. And so it was just reactions to the stories that were being shared, you know, the, the variety of experiences that people had that were so different, that was unexpected. And I think people were really just leaning into empathizing for the other participants in the group and the stories that they were sharing with one another. Kristen, you had mentioned program managers and the actual residents who were going through this process. And I, I guess it wasn't quite clear. So were they both there at the workshop together? They were not. No, we made an intentional choice to have the buyout program managers meet separately from the residents. We know that there's probably a lot of tension between people who are administering the programs and the people that are going through them because there's a lot that's flawed about these programs. And so we wanted to create community and safe dialogue for program managers and residents in separate venues to start. It would be wonderful if we were able to bring these groups together now that they've had a chance to build some community with folks who are like themselves. But it was very intentional that we kept those conversations separate. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And could you just give me a, a little sampling? The program managers, who were they though? Were these like local government type people? Like now I'm trying to visualize who they are. I'll start and then Shamika can fill in because I wasn't in those conversations, but okay. there were a variety of different people from federal, state, and local government levels who were participating from all across the country. Some of the programs that we hear often are leaders in this work, like Charlotte Mecklenburg and the New Jersey DEP Blue Acres programs were in there and they were great they were just really very, very valuable resources for thinking about where these programs could go in the future. Shamika, so this is probably just obvious, but I think it's important because you've both, I think, covered this a little bit here. But why is it so important to incorporate both lived and learned experiences into these buyout programs? One of the things that you know we mentioned before, again, is that this is really an emotional experience. But what we've learned is that the people on the ground who have actually gone through these programs 
they see them in implementation. Um, And so they see them for all the good that they offer, as well as some of the flaws that they have. And so going back and speaking with people who've gone through this program really allows us to understand what are some of the pain points and difficulties that we could be looking to improve as a part of the program experience for those who have to go through it in the future. If this is something, if buyouts are a tool that communities, municipalities, you know, people want to use in order to adapt to climate change, it needs to be something that leaves people whole in the end. It needs to be something that people want to use. And if the stories that we hear coming out of these programs continue to be painful, right, or not necessarily have all of these supports that folks need, that's something we should know. And we really won't know that unless we're speaking to the people who are directly impacted by these programs and who have gone through it. Kristen, I want to talk about these. There were, at least from one of the workshops, there were these five key recommendations. And you don't even have to go through all of them, but just maybe highlight a few of them. And I'm going to just tell my listeners that I will have links that if people want to read more thoroughly some of the things that you guys did, it'll be there. But can you kind of give us some of these recommendations that they went through this workshop and they're all putting their brains together? And what were some of those? I think the number one recommendation that really resonates with me, and I've heard now several times speaking with federal and state officials, is that we have to find a way to transition from a buyout, a series of buyout projects to a buyout program that allows people from all parts of the country, no matter the context they're coming from, to access funding, to move to a safer location and have the support systems that they need to make that transition, whether that be case managers, trusted sources of information, peer support systems. It has to be a holistic program that is voluntary and allows people to make the choice when they're ready to go instead of, oh, you're going to have a year or even less to decide this huge, enormous life decision, right? You're going to leave a home that you might have been living in for decades or that your family might have been in for generations. You can't expect that people are suddenly going to be ready to make that decision quickly. And especially having it happen, typically the funding comes in after a crisis. And so we need to be thinking about a more holistic program that allows a lot of people from a lot of different areas of the country to access resources and move to safer locations. And Shamika, I remember reading one, it talked about, and so it was interesting about the program managers versus the residents themselves. And sometimes there was friction or maybe frustration with that. But actually, one of the recommendations said those that were probably most successful and happiest with the process, they were with a good program manager that really held their hand through the process. And that was really important to them. I saw that as one of the recommendations, right? Yes. And you had actually sort of leaned into this earlier. People want someone who is going to be, these are one of the recommendations, someone who is going to be reliable, trustworthy, and knowledgeable. You know, you mentioned earlier, a lot of people who are going through this program sort of had to become experts themselves on the nuances of the program and the paperwork and the documents and the timelines. And it would have been helpful for a lot of them in their experience to have had someone from the program who could do this for them. And there are programs that we have seen, such as the New Jersey Blue Acres program, where they really do walk the community members hand in hand through 
many parts of the process of the program. And so that was one thing that we really heard was helpful is that to have people who sort of act as a case manager in a sense and are willing to answer questions and are easy to talk to, to get in contact with, and most importantly, people who are aware that these people are going through a traumatic experience. And so moving with that sort of care in their conversations and in the way that they handle these participants is really important to the success of the program. I love some of the anecdotes in it. And I'm sure very frustrating. They're talking about like people don't want to be worse off financially. If they break even, they're happy. But like if you have to spend a week in a hotel between selling and moving to a new place, that can really hurt people. But one of the most frustrating things that I heard that is just insanity is that when they leave the house and it's demolished in some cases, and I'm sure this is not every single buyout program, sometimes you actually even had to leave appliances in the house to be destroyed if you wanted to take your toaster out. Nope, can't do it because that would be giving you a creditors. I mean, is that how it kind of played out? I mean, Kristen, you want to take that? Yeah, I remember that coming up in the in the conversations with residents. That was even a surprise to me. I did, I wasn't aware that that was a, a limitation on people, you know, people's choice to move. And you know, if nothing else, residents were like, "This is just such a waste of good equipment." And you know, it doesn't make any sense to us. Why would we have this policy in place? So maybe there are reasons for it that I don't understand, but it's definitely something that that came up as a place to look in the future. Shamika, as, as we wrap this up, what's next for you? And also, this is really important work that you've got. I love looking through the notes and the recommendations and such. And I know this is a long-term process, but have government entities looked at what you guys done here? So we have been working both as a project team, as well as individuals who work in organizations that are are trying to move this work forward. And so as a project team, we recently presented at the Columbia Managed Retreat Conference. And so we did talk about this project there. And then our climate adaptation team here in New York at the Nature Conservancy has just recently completed a round of presentations to the various state entities that will be managing the buyout programs or whatever form buyouts may potentially take in New York to share with them the research that we've been doing for the last few years, this project and others, as well as the recommendations that have come out of this past few years of work. All right, Kristen. So following up on what Shamika just said, what's up with your organization? How are you guys following up? What's the future for you and this project? Yeah, there's a couple of things. One is, as we were sharing earlier, the level of trauma that community members experience in this process is is really challenging. And the community-based organizations and Indigenous leaders in our leadership are asking us for resources for them to help their own communities, because the trauma is showing up in unexpected ways that's creating conflict and making their work in their own communities even more difficult. And we started looking for resources to share with them. And it's it was surprising to find out that there aren't many free resources out there. So if anybody that's listening to this podcast is aware of free resources and guidance that we think might help in this realm, please, please do share with us. The other thing I'd love to share is one of the things that came out of the conversation with residents 
is that they'd really like to have other residents that they could speak with who are going through the same process. And this is a big life decision. And when you're facing a big life decision, what do you do? You find other people you can trust who've gone through something similar and you talk to them about it. Or you look for information on how it went for other people like you. And we'd love to support people who've gone through buyout programs to connect with other people who might be considering this option to get the straight dope. What is this process like? What should they be watching out for? And even better, if we can create resources for these folks to support these conversations with residents making sure they are the people who help connect them to other resources that they need, to good information on the buyout programs, because we're finding they need a lot of translation. They're very complicated. So if we can create those conversations and further these conversations between people in government, people who are program managers, and people who are going through this process to really get to the nuts and bolts of what needs to change and where there's areas of agreement in that, I think that would be a huge step forward for us too. Kristen Shamika, thank you so much for coming on. There's going to be all sorts of resources in the show notes for this episode. And of course, I, I'm assuming that they can reach out to you guys if they have more questions. There's communities out there that want to learn more about this process. But thanks again for coming on the podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Hey, Adapters. Joining me is Tramika Carrier-Rankins. Tramika is a resident of Lake Charles, Louisiana. Hi, Tramika. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. How are you today? Well, it's a pleasure to have you. First off, let's get a little background, though. How long have you lived in Lake Charles? I have lived in Lake Charles roughly about 28 years. So for a while, you've probably seen a lot of changes. Okay, great. We're going to talk about some of the flooding issues that you have dealt with, but I also want to give some history there. Let's talk about the house that ultimately you sold through a buyout. But can you tell us a little bit of the history? How did you find that house? You know, What, what kind of the process did you go when you bought that house originally? Originally, when I bought the house, I had just had my son, who was 21 years old, living in an apartment complex. And it just, the apartment living just wasn't working for me. Every other night, you had somebody that was arguing, fighting, fussing, and things. So I was just like, okay, I'm going to buy a home. So I looked all around, all around. First time home buyer, ran across an ad in the paper. I was desperate to move. So I bought the house. The guy was like, we'll do owner financing. I was like, okay, great, whatever, you know. So I gave him like maybe $10,000 down on the home, paid like $400 a month for it was it was supposed to be longer but I paid it off in about maybe 15 years 10 to 15 years so I had been living there for 21 years my son actually turned 21 in December that just passed so roughly about 20 years I lived in the same location and it was great the first you know 15 16 years of living there we had no issue right around the 17th years when our house first flooded it was in 2017. Then it flooded again, 2020, then again, 2021. But for the most part, it was an older community. We didn't have any issues. Uh, We were probably the youngest family that was living on that area in that inclusive part of the block. So we never had any issues. You know, to watch my kids grow up, very friendly in the neighborhood. It was actually... Used to be a prominent neighborhood back then. It was uh, what I found out was an army base back then. That's where all the general streets came in at. So we never had any issues in that area. It was just a little community living together. Okay. So I want to dig into that. That's that's fascinating too, just how for so long you didn't get in flooding. But as I'm sure with most home buyers, when you bought this originally, you probably didn't think about the potential flooding threat, did you? Or did you? 
Well, we were told that if they had an issue in the 80s, but it wasn't bad. And we were considered a flood zone X. Back there, it's still considered a flood zone X. How? I do not know. But they had putting a pumping system, supposedly, to remedy the issue that they happened maybe late in the 1980s. I didn't find this out until I first flooded. But as far as hearing anything about the that back area from the time that I moved to Lake Charles until that started happening, I never heard on. The first time I heard anything about it was in 2017 when we actually flooded because I'm originally from Opelousas. So I've never heard anything about the area. Like I said, it was a copacetic area. We were living there, you know, just happy as can be. I had always thought about moving out of the area because I was supposed to be a starter home. When my son turned five, we were supposed to move out of it. However, I chose an alternate route on education from all three of my kids. to put them all in private school until they got out of high school. So I was just like, okay, when they get out, start going to college, then we'll move. So we were already looking to move. But with them going to school and stuff like that, that was something that, you know, that was an extra fifteen to two thousand dollars out of our pocket each month, and we just decided to stay there till you know my last one went in college. Right. Well, th- that's interesting too. Is that for fifteen years there were no flooding issues, but then over a very short period that you had multiple flooding issues. Did anyone give you information of why that might be the case, or it just was a long period of just not a lot of raining that would lead to flooding? That was. Has anyone sort of speculated why you got so many floods in such a short period? Uh- they call it a hundred year events is what they kept saying, you know, and I'm like, okay, you know, I finally got fed up to the point where it's a hundred year flood event. Okay. This is happening. First time it happened, it was Hurricane Harvey. It was a lot of rain that inundated Texas, moved over to Louisiana. So I let that slide for that one. I was just okay. like, you know what? It could be, that's what it was. You know, it was a lot of rain that came in the area. So I'm going to let that one maybe slide because I was actually delivering mail at the time. And I know they had us in these trucks and they told us, Hey, when it gets too bad, get down. And I know I've seen areas that were flooding within the city. So I let that one kind of go like, okay, but now she's going to come back less than two and a half years later from the date. And we're going to flood. And we didn't receive as much water as we did for Laura, which was a hurricane prior to the one in Delta. And you're going to call that a hundred year flood event when you had less water there then you had that rained onto the city than you had for Hurricane Laura that decimated the city to smithereens. So you can't tell me that, you know, the water levels that day, according to the national rainfall, which I was at the, at the airport, you can't say that we had that much rain the next event because that wasn't so. The amount of rain that was recorded. In 2017, the only landscape that changed, it wasn't the water, it was the landscape of different communities being built around and old piping meeting new piping, more to say. And you're not compensating for that extra rainfall and you're having water directed to one location. And when the rainfall is coming, you're not opening gates, floodgates in time, and you're not turning these pumps on in time. It's actually what happened. What started happened as a repetitive issue. Hmm. Okay, let's talk about the buyout, though. And so you sold your home. Let, I want you to describe that process. Who did you work with? How long did it take? And ultimately, yeah, yeah just let's get some of those details. 
The buyout itself was a headache. Actually, I lost all my hair after the buyout. <laughs> I'll right. be honest with you. Yeah, I literally was riding down the street working and I would actually take my hand and run it through my hair and I'd come out with gobs of hair. It was just oh, very stressful. Goodness. We worked with the Calcasieu Parish Police Jury, as well as they had a team that came out for the buyout community itself that was operated out of Louisiana Watershed Initiative. In the beginning, it was chaotic. I'll be real with you. It seems like it was the first in the area for Lake Charles. However, it was not the first for Louisiana because they did something similar in New Orleans for the participants in New Orleans. If I'm not mistaken, that was the first areas down there, Lafouche Parish and things like that. So it wasn't new to Louisiana, but it was new to Lake Charles, Louisiana. So you had a lot of hiccups along the way. You had a lot of headaches. You had a lot of, I'm uncertain with the answers. So it was never really anything that was straightforward. You had to do a lot of digging, had to do a lot of research. They'll say they'll give you one deadline and then it turns around to be another deadline. So if I can say that it was actually hell on earth, that would be besides what we're already going through. That would be the great concept of terms that I would use. Like I said, to the points where I literally had to cut off all my hair because I lost it. Because, you know, even on the buyout process, you know, if you had stuff that you didn't know about like 10 years prior that may have people put liens on your house for like a hundred dollar bill you didn't know about you moved or something like that you thought you paid but the courthouse didn't take it off you had to go dig up records to show them this was paid that was paid then you had to turn around and pay them like 30 40 50 dollars just to get the lien off your house that made no sense to me but those are the things that they put you through the records weren't kept the best records at, at all weren't kept some things that was on there from people that were buying out the stories that i heard Stuff that was on there, stuff like 20 years ago that should have been taken off. So is this mainly the county that you're interacting with? Like, who, what entities are you interacting with through all this? The entities that we, we interacted with was Calcasieu Parish Police Jury and Louisiana Watershed Initiative. People that they put in place in Lake Charles in the uh, Magnolia Building, which is a county building. They gave them a whole floor dedicated to the area that we were in to actually assist with buying out the process. Originally, it should have went when we had our first meeting. They said it was going to happen within a three month span. Well, it was almost a year before actually contracts and everything was actually bought out. And then at the end, we were bought out. We were talking about Louisiana Watershed Initiative, but the buyout for our house was actually Louisiana Road Home. Nobody knew that until the day of signing. Let's stop there. And that so you were bought out. You're getting a check written to you. Tell us about the other side of that. So you now have to move. Were you moving to a new location before all that finalized? Because I'm sure there's issues of like, all right, you need to get paid before you can actually even consider moving. They did not do it like that. So how did, what are you doing now? Like, are you in a different place? Where have you? When I closed the same day that I closed on my house, I closed on the new home. What they did is, and this is so ludicrous, you know, usually when you sell a home, you have 30 days to get out, you have 30 days to move, or you have 30 days to do this. That was not the case here. It was, okay, when you come to sign the day that you sign, you can no longer go back to your home because this home belongs to the state of Louisiana. Interesting. So you couldn't step foot on the property. You couldn't do anything. When you signed the paperwork, you had to unleash all keys to that property. So yes, so you have to give them the keys. And at closing, they take it, put it in the envelope, then they come back and do the paperwork for the new housing or whatever the deal may be. But yes, everything was done in one day. So 
I ended up that last week that I know I was moving that I confirmed that the rest of the loan went through with the bank, that everything was good. I put an offer on a house. I made the moving date that day. So I showed up to my new house, parked one U-Haul there. The other one was still at the house being loaded and went back and get the second U-Haul when I finished when I finished everything. So everything had to be out that same day. So yes, I moved out of one house. I took a whole week off. I moved everything. We had two days. We put it in the U-Haul and we moved the same day that we closed. Okay. So tell me, like this is important, I think, because when people are buying out, you're talking about disrupting your own sense of community and such. How far away did you move? Like where did you buy a home? I actually moved maybe five to eight miles from where I was living before. So did the flood history of that new property come into play at all? Yes. You had to buy a flood zone X. You had to buy something that did not have a 500-year floodplain. Okay. That was the rules to it. So before you even, you may have found a property that you really liked. Before they okayed that property, you had to submit the address to the people of the Watershed Initiative who were working on your case, your case manager. She had to check it in the database to make sure that property was validated for you to buy Now, it's my understanding that you've been very enthusiastic about helping other people through this process. Are you like you dealing with other landowners like that? I am. The ones that call me and ask me for assistance, the ones that are maybe in phase two, phase three. Yes, we have talked. Even ones that got bought out the same time as me, you know, that were still confused on things. They call me up and yes, we talk all the time. Still going to the community. Actually, I rolled up on them tearing down my house one day. They didn't notify us when it was going to be done. They didn't notify us saying, hey, it's going to be done this day. Just gave us a a blank email saying demolition is going to be on the way. So I actually was in the area checking on other people and I pulled up to my old house and I seen them just put the pitchfork in the roof to tear it down. So I actually sat there and watched them do that. But yes, I go back into the community once a week, generally on the weekends. I do give out my business cards. I do talk to people. I do encourage them on how to do that. If they're confused on any paperwork or anything that needs to go moving forward, as far as the buyouts, what to look for, liens on their properties. I make sure these old properties who may have their old deceased mom or dad on it. Hey, y'all need to do a succession. Who's going to take over this? You know, you're going to sell it to them. Like who's going to take over this, this property? You know, you've been living there. You've been paying the taxes. So try to negotiate with them like, okay, we need to do a succession on this property because if not, you're going to lose your place on the buyout and you guys are going to be stuck with this house. So those are things that I'm actually going back in the community to do. I had an old lady that was across the street from me that was refusing to sell. Like she's maybe 80 years old. She was refusing to sell. She had been there for 40 some years. She had took a lien out on a house for Hurricane Rita. So she had a little bit left on it, you know, to pay. And she's like, it just doesn't pay. It's just me and my grandson. Okay. It doesn't pay for you to buy it out. You have a 2,000 square, you have your house is about 2,000 square feet. You're going to get almost the max at the buyout. How does that make sense? Because you didn't do anything for Laura. You didn't do anything for Delta to the home. So the house is just riddled with mold. It's riddled with, you know, this flood water, no telling what's living in it. And you want to go back there? Like, let's make it make sense because there's nothing left. It's going to happen again. It's not when it's, it's not if it's going to happen. It's when it's going to happen. And we're going to be in the same boat again. So I eventually talked to her and I went meet her every weekend. And she finally decided to sell because it made sense to her that everything around you is going to be gone. You have no protection. You have no security. You have nobody to call on. You're going to be stuck in the middle of nowhere. 
And, you know, those are some of the things that, you know, I've, I've taken a liberty because there's a lot of older people that were left within the community. I take pride in, hey, let's talk about this. Let's let's reason it out. Let's see what you can do if anything happens again. Will you be able to have the money in your pocket to replace this? Will you be able to do that? So it's a lot of talking. They asked me to run for city council, but there's not any houses back there to run for. There's only two or three subdivisions. They've already torn down about 45 houses, you know, since the buyout. So there's nothing left back there in the community. It's just a lot. And lots with dirt they put on top of it to level it out. That's that's all that's left of memories, you know. Well, they should put you on the payroll. But it just occurs to me as people studying buyout programs and shuts the notion of the community of people that are leaving, they just need to keep people together as resources because those conversations that you had with your neighbor, that that was critical. And so that's probably going to get lost with a lot of bureaucracy. So I hope people can learn from that. And just one question related to that is that you were there to see the destruction of your house. How did that feel? I actually have a video where I sat there and started crying because I told my husband, I didn't know how to feel. Excuse me if I seem like I'm tearing up because that was 20 years of my life in one location. That was our home that was paid for, you know, and it's kind of bittersweet because I'm like, I'm almost 50. I'm pushing 50. My husband's over 50. And, you know, even though we were sending our kids, trying to give them the best of the best, that is something that we still, you know, on the side have to struggle to pay off. So that was ours. That was a piece of something that we had, including, you know, two vehicles that got lost in the last flood that we had that was almost paid off. So we had to start all over again. So it was bittersweet because every room that they went in, there was a memory, whether it was good or bad. And I sat through the whole thing from them starting from the beginning and to all the way to the end. And it was a memory, either it was good memory or a bad memory, or it was both. Each room that they went into, I had a memory that I can recall. So it was really, I wouldn't say that I got depressed, but for that whole weekend, I didn't say anything. And I took a video of it and my grandson, who is four now. I brought it home to him. I said, hey, the house is gone. He said, really? Let me see. So his dad and mom went by there after I had went home because they knew that it kind of threw me for a loop. I just went home for the rest of the day. I got out the field and I was crying when I walked through the door. She's like, let it go. Let it go. I said, you just don't understand how I feel. So my grandson came home uh, after they went by and he said, mama. I said, what? He said, the house is gone. I said, well, how do you feel about that? And he said, mm. and he told me thumbs down, thumbs down to him is something that he's feeling a certain type of way from it. So that's how he and I communicate. If he's had a good day or if he feels a love, it's thumbs up. If he's having a bad day or something that bothers him, it's thumbs down. And he looked at me and he shed a little tear and he said, thumbs down. His whole concern was we had a dog that died after the second storm and we buried him in the yard. And his concern was I left my friend. So that was, you know, it was it was a little emotional roller coaster. However, I've been in my house July 12th will be a year that I've been in the new home. And, you know, we've had great memories. We share, you know, good times. But then there's times that when it rains, I'm still looking outside to see if this new property is going to flood. If it's if it's constantly raining, you know, I'm looking outside on my cameras. I go, like, oh, you know, is the street, is the water flowing the way it's supposed to flow or anything like that? And it's, I guess it's something that, you know, if you've never been in a house where you're, and I'm six foot one, and you've never been in a house where you're stuck in there and the water has came over your hips and is steady rising, you know, there's nothing that you can shake out your head, basically. 
you know, no matter what you do, you can't shake it. And I'm just guessing that, you know, that may be something we have to live with as people who have been through that. You know, the last storm, I had people that were having babies over their shoulders walking in the, and the water was in their chest area, you know, and their babies are on top of their head. They're trying to hold on to the baby as they're trying to wade through the water. So that's the last traumatic experience that we had. So the house being torn down, it was traumatic in a sense. But it's like, wow, nobody else in the community hopefully will have to go through that. Maybe they're knocking down these houses to build a way for this water to go where it's not going to inundate the rest of the people of their homes. Because now they say they ran out of money. They don't have the funds to buy out phase two and phase three. Well, I'm sorry you lost your home, but I hope you can appreciate that you are a trailblazer because there's going to buy outs for thousands of people across the country. And so you certainly are a trailblazer in doing it and definitely sharing the highs and lows. So I appreciate that. And I want to just end with one question here that because I want my listeners to have a sense of where people are at. Can you tell me your favorite spot in Lake Charles? Do you have a favorite spot there? The Saltgrass Steakhouse at the Golden um, at the Casino. Okay, why? That's my favorite, my favorite spot. Actually, the first time I experienced the Saltgrass Steakhouse was actually in Galveston when I went over and took over a district in Galveston, Texas with my insurance company and had to move to Texas. So my boss was like, come over here. They have lunch specials. I'm going to do it. The first time I went there, I'm like, oh my God, this food's good. So when they brought it to Lake Charles at the Golden Nugget, and they do have other eateries within the Golden Nugget, but that is the best place to go eat. Even though it's a casino, I never really go into the casino. I just go indulge in their great food that they do have. And the second place would be Vic and Anthony's at La Burge Casino. Those are great places to dine at. And just to do places here, yes, people indulge in the casino. They have fun, do everything over there. But I'm just more of a, I like fine dining, fine cuisine. So those are the places that I would go. All right. Fantastic. Yeah, that's the first time, like that kind of recommendation. So I appreciate the diversity. All right, Tramika, it has been such an honor to talk with you because you just experienced it firsthand and you very vivid examples that you use. And again, like I said, you are a trailblazer than this. I think a lot of people are going to learn from listening to this podcast what you went through. And I hope you can continue to be a resource for other people out there. But thanks for coming on the podcast. No problem at all. Thank you guys for even offering me to do that. That's an honor. Hey, Adapters. Joining me is Mary Carson Stiff, the Executive Director of Wetlands Watch. Hi, Mary Carson. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, let's just jump right into this. Where are you based? Based in Norfolk, Virginia, southeastern part of the state. All right, there's a city that's always in the news when it comes to sea level rise, but we'll get into that. Tell us a bit about Wetlands Watch. What do you guys do there? So we are a nonprofit and we're based in Norfolk, as I said, but we work statewide and we're really focused on nature-based solutions to climate change. We run a ton of different programs, but at the core, we are primarily concerned with how all of our natural infrastructure is going to survive the increased impacts we're seeing from sea level rise, increased rainfall intensity, and other climate stressors. All right, let's set the stage here, I guess, with some of the background on flooding. Can you give us some of the history of flooding the region that you're dealing with? Yeah, so our organization is based in Norfolk. And so I'm going to talk 
primarily about Norfolk because the it's kind of the case study. It's ground zero for sea level rise and for flooding issues in Virginia and, and certainly for the East Coast. Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia specifically, we have the highest rate of relative sea level rise on the East Coast. And we are experiencing, you know, what this really feels like on the ground is that right now we have about 45 days of nuisance flooding every year. I was driving back from a meeting just before we jumped on this call together, and I had to drive about three different ways, so redirected three different ways to get to my house because of impassable roadways due to a huge rain bomb that we just had a few, you know, an hour or so ago. It is 45 days, but certainly feels like more, especially lately. But the projection for nuisance flooding is that by 2050, we're actually going to have these events 85 to 125 days wow. per year. So that's essentially a third of the calendar year. It's pretty significant here. It's impossible to, to live in this area and not have your daily life impacted by flooding instead of snow days. Our schools have flood days where they're actually delayed for school or school is just outright canceled because getting there is just too difficult for our transportation sector as well as for individual people trying to get kids to school. It's kind of a mess. I think this is a first where my guest had to adapt the route to get to the recording of the podcast because of flooding <laughs> this. So that, yeah, that that's a nice visual there. And just one other thing about Norfolk is that you've got a, a very unique neighbor that also puts you in the news a lot more than what I guess a typical community would have. Who is that neighbor? The Naval Station Norfolk. Right. It's, and that's a, it's a pretty big one, right? Yeah, it's the largest naval station in the world. And they have a lot of challenges associated with sea level rise on the base. They have raised their docks a number of times to help adapt to those to these rising waters. And they have all sorts of issues associated with getting people onto the base. The major thoroughfare is Hampton Boulevard, and it is wet significantly and very frequently. And they have a lot that they have to consider in terms of their adaptation plan and their mitigation plan for their operations to to run smoothly. But they're an active participant. We have some joint land use studies that are underway in our region, many in fact, and more planned. And so it's unusual in the sense that the military has such a big presence here and it defines our region. They're not a silent partner necessarily in a lot of other parts of the country. We know that there's less interaction between local governments and the military that may have bases located in those governments. But here they are part of the conversation and there is this type of joint planning that we're seeing occurring more frequently and with more intention. So we're pretty fortunate. Okay. So let's talk about buyouts. This episode is about buyouts. Can you Give us a quick overview of the buyout program that you're working with there. Yes. Does it have a name? It doesn't really. We are working with the city of Norfolk on their innovative buyout program that they've developed and are kind of standing up through their zoning ordinance. The city went through a massive zoning ordinance overhaul with the release of what they tried to make the most resilient zoning ordinance in the country. And that was effective in 2018. And the ordinance has this really cool provision where they're basically setting up 
a alternatively financed buyout program where developers that want to build in the city are footing the bill for acquisitions of developed land and undeveloped land in their high-risk parts of the city. Okay, so you sort of answered it just there. And besides the obvious reason that there's flooding, why did the city and the county – I mean, is it the city or is it a county or is it kind of a both thing? Well, in Virginia, we do all of the above. We're kind of unusual in that way, but this is the city of Norfolk, so it's a traditional municipality. And so why did they decide to pursue buyouts of all things? Well, the city is on its own pursuing buyouts in a limited capacity, I would say. The traditional way that buyouts have worked and are in coastal Virginia are through local governments using FEMA grant dollars to do the actual buyouts, to finance it and to provide the infrastructure for the program to exist. So using FEMA deed restriction templates, for example, as a condition of receiving the grant funds. All of the buyout programs in our region, with the exception of one city, the city of Newport News, are using FEMA grant dollars. City of Newport News uses general funds. The city of Norfolk has done a few buyouts using those FEMA grant resources. This program is extremely alternative and it essentially uses development interest as a financier of the buyouts that are occurring in the community. And the reason why they're interested in this buyout program is that they have a significant portion of their city at risk from flooding that's occurring today and more at risk from flooding that will occur in the future. So they have to get people out of the way and they need to do this through resources that go beyond the city's own financial resources, of which they're not enough, and they're being utilized in different ways. They came up with this idea that removes their budget from the responsibility of carrying the buyout program. And then it also, in a sense, removes the city from the center of the transaction. In the FEMA buyout programs, the city plays a very important Mm. role in the sense that they have to actually facilitate the buyout and they have to own the land that results from the buyout occurring. So when the structure is demolished, that land goes into city ownership and it's on them to maintain it, to, to monitor it and all that. And so this program doesn't do that. It basically sets up this marketplace where There are points that are being earned to develop everywhere in the city, and those points are resilience-based, not just buyout-based, but resilience-based. And then they say, well, you can earn points if a developer pays money to extinguish the development rights in a high-risk part of the city. And that extinguishment occurs between a conservation organization or a land-holding organization and a property owner. So local government isn't involved at all. So how much money is generally generated a year? I mean, does it vary? Well, it certainly will, we assume, because the program has not been effectuated yet. So our role is to help make it happen. The language that authorizes this action to occur was included in the zoning ordinance update, but it has not been tested fully. and. Part of why we were brought in to do this is because we have a land conservation background in the organization, and we also have an adaptation background and a planning background and all that. So we're kind of bringing in all of our areas of expertise and combining them and meshing them together to try to actually 
figure out how this would work in practice. And what we discovered is that, you know, the ordinance needs to be modified a little bit. So it's more reflective of how land conservation organizations manage and follow their own best practices. So we're working on getting that marriage between local government purpose or government purpose and conservation organizations purpose, really that marriage to get those programs to speak the same language. The city is a finite area. Was there early on target areas of, is there like acreage that you have right now, or is that a shifting number too? Well, the way that the city has prioritized these areas for eligibility to be bought out through the zoning ordinance is through the FEMA flood maps, essentially. So when the city did their big zoning ordinance rewrite, they split up the city land-wise into two different zones, a high-risk flood zone and a low-risk flood zone. And that was based off of the FEMA maps. So the high-risk flood zone is the 1% annual chance flood and the 0.2% annual chance flood. And then the low-risk flood zone is the X zone, so the lowest risk. But it is certainly not zero risk, as every good floodplain manager should say. Those two zones were stipulated And because of that stipulation, all of the buyout work that occurs through this new zoning ordinance facilitated program has to occur in those high-risk flood zones. So the focus is these flood zones and such. And were you part of these conversations? But how do you ensure equitable outcomes of a buyout program? You know, you think about disadvantaged communities, marginalized communities. Did that come into play where you're at? So this program in particular is because the two districts were established according to flood risk zones and the FEMA maps. The zones themselves did not have any, there was no discussion of of equity in the creation of the zones. The implementation of the project, however, will need to have an equity lens applied. Right now, the program is best set up to acquire properties that are vacant. Someone has a double lot, for instance, in Norfolk, which is common, but the lots are tiny. Then they could put the adjacent lot to the lot that has their structure on it in a conservation easement, which would then remove the development right of that secondary lot. And that would be a form of a buyout through this program that we're discussing. In that sense, the properties that would be low-hanging fruit properties are properties that are, you know, owned by someone who has two lots in their ownership. I think that the program could work through a number of different lenses. There is this great need to provide resources for communities that have not received need in the past, our disadvantaged communities. And this program actually could provide a funding resource that they would otherwise not have access to, which would actually help build the ability for, you know, for someone to be compensated for their property. Now, the other side of this is that, you know, if it's not managed properly, you certainly don't want people to be forced into participation, which of course wouldn't happen because this is a voluntary program, but you don't want programs to be set up. And so it's a kind of an incentive that is salacious or maliciously intended to, you know, to prey on people with, with, with less means. So I think that there are a lot of ways that this could shake out and our goal, and certainly the city's goal is to have it work in 
a way that is favorable to help assist the people who need the most help. Well, you're just starting with this particular program. Was the public involved? Were they acting? You talked about these zoning changes and stuff. Was it an active? Because a lot of times people just, they don't get involved with these local policy decisions. But was there active engagement in getting feedback from the public? For this massive zoning overhaul, yes, they did a ton of outreach with the community. It was a, a really big undertaking and kind of complementary to this zoning update. The city also adopted two really important long-range planning documents, one of which is fairly unique, and I'm not aware of another community that has adopted such a long-range plan. The Norfolk has a Vision 2100 document that basically set the stage for the zoning ordinances approach in dividing the city into these two zones, one of high risk, one of low risk. And that's definitely worth a look. Essentially, this very brief, it's about a 10-page planning document, shows the vision that current planning staff have for the city. And there's a map that shows different parts of the city and different colors indicating where they plan to actually armor against future impacts. So those areas are indicated in red and areas where they foresee adaptation to changing waters, which is essentially areas where they're not going to focus extensive resources in protecting. Those are retreat areas, of course, not said outright in the plan, but that's what they are. And those are areas that are identified in yellow. Then they have neighborhoods of the future, which are essentially receiving areas when you're talking about relocation and buyouts, you have sending and receiving areas. So those yellow areas are sending areas and the purple areas, the neighborhoods of the future are the receiving areas. The city spoke in this planning document about what they're about, what the realities are that they're facing and tried to create some sort of future vision for how they plan to adapt or to mitigate against the impacts. So this planning document happened at the same time that the city was going through this big comprehensive plan update, as well as the zoning ordinance update. So everything happened somewhat in step. We also had, prior to all of this occurring, a very robust Dutch Dialogues program. I'm sure you've had people on this podcast talk about the Dutch Dialogues occurring in America before. So there was a lot of buildup associated with the launch of these significant planning and zoning efforts. All right. This might be a challenge, but if you could give one piece of advice for other people considering a buyout program, what would it be? And obviously you've given a ton of advice already, but just sort of like kind of in closing, what would one big bit of advice be? So a significant portion of our work is looking at how communities can overcome the barriers to do buyouts. Because right now, there are a lot of communities that aren't touching it because it's too hard, it's too costly. And the maintenance and stewardship of the properties that result from the buyout can be a deal breaker for many communities. And so we've been really focusing on how to help governments, local governments, overcome these barriers. And that's why we've explored the use of land conservation organizations stepping into this really important long-term stewardship role. And what I'll say is that we have had a hard time getting land trusts to come to the table and want to take on this long-term stewardship role of properties that have been acquired. 
and that are just vacant lots littered throughout a landscape. Because that's what the future looks like with climate change, with sea level rise, and with a government's ability to adapt. It's really open land, and it's long-term stewardship and land management. That's what's facing us. And right now, there are no entities that want to take on this. And we, as a movement, as a group of professionals working on climate adaptation, really need to hone in on this issue. And it starts with the grant programs and the, the federal grant programs understanding this complicated problem. Right now, FEMA grant programs and other federal buyout grant programs are not including long-term stewardship money in their grant allocation. This is a mistake. If we look to the land conservation community, they require stewardship to be a part of every land transaction because they know how important it is. You have to have insurance on these properties to protect against lawsuits. And there's a big difference between a local government taking on the burden of land management and a land trust taking on that burden. This is where we're spending a lot of time thinking about potential solutions. How do we get the grant buyout program landscape to really understand what they're asking governments to do in this long-term land management work? And, you know, we've explored modification of deed restriction language from FEMA to get the program to better coordinate with traditional conservation and kind of best practices conservation work. And we've been marginally successful in the sense that we got them to approve some modified deed language at the Region 3. But we're very far from where we need to be in this space. And I just can't emphasize enough that we should be bringing every stakeholder to the table as we can to help us accomplish more buyouts, smarter buyouts, and more equitable buyouts. But if We know if there's this threshold burden of stewardship resources not being available, we're never going to get those other stakeholders that we really need to the table to accomplish this work. So I know that's long-winded, but I just can't overemphasize how important that piece of this is. Okay, last question. Do you have a favorite natural spot in your area that you'd like to go to? I live in a neighborhood that is right on the Lafayette River. and our neighborhood is like a big key. And there are two creeks on either side with the Lafayette River right at the top of the neighborhood. It's the neighborhood of Colonial Place. So shout out to all my Colonial Place residents. I walk and run along a a walkway, a pathway that goes all along this neighborhood in these two creeks and along the Lafayette River. And it's my happy place. It's a refuge from stress and work. And it's where I took my two children out every evening into the breeze along the creek to feel the air on their faces and listen to the birds and check out the night herons fishing in the evening. And it's just, it's heaven. And it's right in my my front yard and in my backyard. And I just feel really grateful. All right. Excellent choice. Well, Mary Carson, it was a pleasure having you on and good luck with what you're doing there. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Hey, Adapters. Joining me is Tim Troutman. Tim is the Flood Mitigation Program Manager at Charlotte Mecklenburg Stormwater Services in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Doug. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. It's a treat having you on, and we're going to talk about buyouts here. But first off, can you just tell us a bit about the Stormwater Services place that you work at? What do you guys do there? Yeah, so I work for Mecklenburg County. 
which is a stormwater utility in Charlotte, North Carolina. So it's a government entity. And the whole concept of, of our stormwater utility is very similar to a water sewer type of or, or electric type of a situation. So we bill the public for the impervious area on their property that generates water runoff. And we use those dollars to manage and maintain the system downstream and the flood risk downstream and the quality of the water downstream of everyone's home. And so that's the premise of our stormwater utility. And it provides us with some great stable reasonably stable funding. I want to get into this a bit more later, but just so the models like most counties, like it's a millage tax rate or something like that. And that's how you're generating revenue. Yeah. So no, actually, Doug, the stormwater fee is based upon the impervious surface on every single property within the Charlotte-Mecklenburg area. And so it really is a rate type of structure, not a tax structure. People pay every month based upon their square footage calculation and again, it's really correlated to the amount of runoff that comes off the property that we have to manage downstream. Great clarification. That's very useful. All right. Can you also set the stage to tell us a bit about the flood history in your county? What, what's kind of happening there that flooding is an issue? Yeah. So Charlotte, I would say, is a um, not coastal, obviously. It is an urban flash flooding community. We not only are not on the coast, but we don't have a big, huge river system that comes through downtown. Fortunately, we don't have the Mississippi River or another big system where we have a lot of lead time, but we do have a lot of creeks, over 350 miles of of mapped floodplain streams in our community. And usually when it starts raining, things can begin to flood anywhere from an hour later to six, seven hours later. And so we don't have a whole lot of lead time. And that leads to some of our interest in buyouts specifically because we don't have a lot of time to evacuate and prepare. The water tends to move maybe a little more swiftly with higher currents and velocities because it's an urban situation and therefore it impacts the types of strategies that we use to manage our stormwater runoff. Okay, perfect. You just led me there. Now talk about your buyout program. That's why we're here on this episode. Can you just give us that sort of broader overview and then we'll dig down into some of the details? Yeah. So within the stormwater utility, about 25 years ago, we had a couple of big flood events. And at the time that those occurred, our program basically just told people to buy flood insurance. And we realized after, after seeing some of the distress, some of the, the rescues that had to happen, the long path to recovery for the homeowners, that we had to do things differently. And so about 20 some years ago, we decided to begin a voluntary buyout program. And we recognize that some of the areas that we have developed in in the past are really meant to store flood water. That is what they're meant to do. That's what they do during large events. And we needed to begin strategically getting folks out of those areas, let the flood water be stored with minimal damage and then let the creeks recede. So that's kind of what spurred that one program, which is our floodplain buyout program within our stormwater utility. You talked a bit about the history there, but how long literally have you been buying up properties as part of this program? Our first buyout in Charlotte, Mecklenburg was in 1999. Wow, that goes back. <laughs> Yeah. And so we're about almost 25 years into the buyout experience and we've really taken the long play on it. We have decided to make it a program within our stormwater utility 
and not just an event-based reactionary, oh, we had a flood, let's get federal money and do a bunch of good work. And then when it dries up and goes away, we go back to business as usual. That's not the approach that we've taken. We've bought at least one property every single year the last 24 years. And in lots of cases, dozens of properties each year. Okay, that was my next question. How many total properties have you guys purchased? Yeah, so we're getting close to about 500 properties in Charlotte, Mecklenburg. And again, we don't have a big river system where we've got, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of buildings in the floodplain. So really from a percentage standpoint, we've made progress. We've made measurable progress toward reducing the impact of flooding in our community and for the better. I imagine that part of what guides you is that you're looking at these flooding zones. I don't know if it's a map and then you're overlaying existing properties. Sometimes that could potentially be troublesome too. How do you guys do it? You probably have that, not, I don't want to call it a wish list, but like these are the properties in the floodplain. And when they're interested in potentially doing a buyout, is it random just based on someone's interest in selling their property? Oh boy, that's a, that's a really good question, Doug. And I have to say that our strategies evolved over the years. So initially, when we first started it, we had a, probably six targeted neighborhoods that had recently flooded, and we were able to get some federal grant funds from FEMA to, to buy them out, and that's kind of where we began. And we really rode a predominantly grant-based program for many, many years. If we could get grant funding, we pursued it. If we couldn't, then we didn't. And what we've done is we've adapted and evolved our program into more of a risk-based approach. And so about 10 or so years ago, we developed a risk assessment tool here locally to try to really evaluate all of the factors that go into flooding and that impact our citizens on a true local level. And we built a risk scoring system off of those values and criteria, and we crunched a bunch of numbers. And so basically, we have what we call a risk assessment, risk reduction plan now for our area that looks at every single property that touches the floodplain and it kind of scores the the flood risk factor on that property. And then we use that as a guide to begin to talk and have conversations with people, do our budget and planning and uh, set goals for, for risk reduction and adaptation of our floodplain areas over time. So are you in a situation where you have more people interested in selling their property than you have money for? Or, I mean, how, how does that balance work out? Yeah, Doug, it, it changes over the years. So when, when it's wet and it's raining and it floods, sometimes we have interest. <laughs> and when we go through periods of dry dry spells and there's not a lot of flooding, people tend to think that we've fixed the flooding problems and the interest wanes. There's also other things at play. The real estate market is a big deal. And certainly we've seen here in uh, nationally across the US the last two to three years with interest rates changing and inflation and property values, uh, supply and demand issues at play. The demand for our voluntary flood buyouts has changed in that kind of climate. Affordable housing can also affect people's interest, the cost of flood insurance. There's so many factors that motivate people to sell that, you know, over the last 25 years, I've just seen, you know, seen it change and evolve and, and be very cyclical in nature. You, you've sort of explained this, but I want you to go into more detail on that. The key thing here is that you've been able to avoid federal funds, I, I guess, more recently, and you have the utility fee and such, but how important is that in to what you're doing? 
You know, it's really important to our success, the way that we've built our program. You know, one of the biggest things that I've seen that's an impediment to, to buyouts is how long things take when you pursue grant funding. I mean, you're talking years, even after a flood, you're talking years and years usually when communities need to to pursue federal funding. And we're able to make decisions much more quickly and adapt to unique situations that homeowners might have in terms of them needing to sell or wanting to sell within a few months or maybe just a home or two being impacted by a by a flood in one specific area. Last summer, we were able to just buy one home along one creek that had two feet of water inside the living space and $50,000 in damage. And before they made repairs, we looked at our plan and we decided, okay, well, this is a property we probably would make an offer to here in the next five to 10 years. Let's move them up the list because there's flood damage and buy it at a reduced cost. And so that's just one example of how having a local program with a little bit of flexibility allows us to, to be able to be a little bit more successful with the risk reduction goals we're trying to achieve. Sort of like reverse real estate sort of process. It's fascinating. Okay. <laughs> In a previous conversation, I want to bring this up again is that, you know, this is talking about the the federal funds and all the strings attached. And so you're able to buy, as you said, damaged goods, which makes the money go farther. What did you mean by that? Yeah. So that's not exclusively what we do, but a couple examples that, that allow us to make our money go further is one, when there is flood damage, you know, we have gone in and bought flood damaged homes with local dollars and we offer them, you know, the, the damage price of the home. And in, in cases where the owners have flood insurance, which we highly recommend, and we have a whole marketing campaign for, then they're made fairly whole and we're able to buy the property in a damaged condition. And it, it kind of creates a win-win-win in terms of wasting resources and re repairing a home. Another example is that here in Charlotte, it's a hot real estate market. There's a lot of areas where house flipping or renovations are happening to homes. And there have been some situations where there have been homes in the floodplain that have come on the market that have not been improved yet. And so they're, I guess, for just for a general example, you know, 1960s or 70s homes that haven't been updated and haven't been improved and don't have new kitchens and things. And so we know that if they sell on the private market, someone will come in and probably invest $50,000, $70,000 in fixing that home up in a lot of areas of, of Charlotte. And so we are able to sometimes make decisions in those situations. We call them kind of maybe semi-distressed properties where we'll you know act on them within a matter of months. And that those kinds of, kinds of things would be impossible through any kind of a federal grant program application process. Okay. And imagine again, that you're being strategic in the properties that you're targeting such, but if you're in a high growth area, and, and I'm sure this is difficult, that, all right, you've identified properties, you're doing these buyouts and you're getting these homes, not they're not flooding, but if there's high growth, is their zoning, is it set up such a way that you're just not allowing additional homes to be built in potential flood areas, like one step forward and two steps back. Is that kind of a control in there? Doug, that's an awesome question. And that's one of the fundamental principles of our buyout program from 25 years ago when we went to our board of county commissioners and said, we think this is a solution that, that we ought to implement. One of the caveats and key factors of that was let's not make sure that we are on one hand, you know, reducing flood risk of our existing housing stock. And on the other hand, there's new risk being added to standards that are not adequate. So what we did is at that same time, we developed much higher building standards 
They're based upon future growth, future changes to the runoff, and bigger, wider floodplains. And all of the new building that's been occurring in Charlotte-Mecklenburg the last 20, 25 years have been built to these much higher standards related to our flood mapping and, and our flood risk. And so we hope that what we've done with this two-prong approach is we have improved and significantly reduced the future flood risk of all the homes that have been built the last 25 years in our community. And at the same time, through our buyout program and other uh, types of programs that we have, we've been reducing the risk of our existing housing stock. And the combination of those two things will make us a much more resilient community 20, 30, 50, 100 years from now. Okay. So the idea is noble that you're trying to get people out of these risky areas and flood zones, but sometimes it, it's, it's not so easy and you're disrupting communities and you're not doing it on purpose. Of course, have you been able to track when you do these buyout programs, where are people relocating? Are they staying in the community? Are they leaving North Carolina altogether? Have you been able to look into that? Yeah, we've done a little bit of, we haven't done any formal tracking, but in most cases over the last 20 some years, we've known where people have purchased or rented or moved to. And um, fortunately, we're in a situation in our Charlotte-Mecklenburg region that there is a lot of development, new development happening and growth happening. And so generally speaking, most folks are staying in the area that want to stay in the area because there is some new housing stock that's always being built in a more resilient manner on higher ground, et cetera, et cetera, with newer materials and, and, and building codes. But we do have people that, you know, move, move out of the area, but it's usually for personal reasons that, that probably they would have done that anyway at some point if they sold to a private individual. So we really have not seen much of an impact of our buyout program on, say, reducing our tax base or reducing our, you know, existing housing stock. If you could give advice to a local government person listening to this or some partners out there working on these areas, what piece of advice would you give them about starting such a program? I think the biggest piece of advice that I'd give anyone is begin with the end in mind. One of the reasons we've had very sustainable success here is that we've had a vision that has been you know, basically approved and supported by our elected officials over the years and our, our government management and the public of open space in our floodplains and parks and recreation areas, passive recreation areas and trails. And so we've actually been able to latch our buyout program and support for it onto the fact that our community wants more open space. They want more greenway trails along our creek corridors. They want to interact with our creeks. They want more trees in those areas. And so find a community value that your community has that buyouts are very compatible with and try to turn it into a positive asset for the community. It is not for us just to, just simply about removing people out of the floodplain and then having you know vacant land and dumping grounds in our community. It's about reducing risk and removing people from these areas that store flood water and creating a community asset in the area, whether that's just simply a, a small moat area or whether it's reforestation or whether it's a, you know, some kind of a passive park, you know, that that's really the ultimate vision that you need to have to get broad support for a buyout program and some uh, sustained success. All right. Fantastic answer. All right. Final question. If some of my listeners happen to be visiting your area, what outdoor spot would you most recommend? What's your favorite spot there? Oh boy. For your listeners, I would say the, the Little Sugar Creek Greenway 
It begins just outside of Uptown Charlotte, and it now traverses all the way into South Carolina for about 15 miles. The last sections here were just opened a few weeks ago of the trail, and the beautiful thing is if you enjoy just that, a nice bike ride, walk, stroll, you enjoy change of scenery between urban settings and neighborhoods and a little bit of rural areas and nature, and you want to go through some of our biot areas, <laughs> finding the Little Sugar Creek Greenway and enjoying a few different sections of it is something that uh, I'd recommend to your listeners, Doug. Now, can you paddle in a canoe in it? Is it big enough for that? It's not quite big enough for that. Yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend it. It's not a okay. big river, river system, but it, it is. Uh, we've restored a lot parts of it, so it's usually fairly beautiful to look at. It's a nice paved trail along most of the sections that's about 10 feet wide. So uh, just a something enjoyable to do, if, especially if you like the outdoors. All right. Fantastic. All right, Tim, this is fantastic. You shared a lot of information in a very short amount of time and you guys are doing some great work there. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, Doug. And I really appreciate what you're doing with your podcast and, and love the opportunity to, to talk about how flood biops can play a role. Hey, Adapters, we're back. I hope you enjoyed those conversations. They were fascinating to me, especially Tramiko. What an amazing story that she has. But I brought Anna Weber from NRDC back on to wrap things up. Hey, Anna, welcome back. Thanks. Glad to be here. All right, fantastic. Tramika, you recruited her and I interviewed her and that was an amazing interview. And so I'm, I'm sure that's what you had in mind when you wanted me to talk to her. She really has an amazing story, right? Yeah. One of the things that we're hoping to do with this workshop is really just share out some of the stories of people who have gone through buyouts. One of the things that I find really interesting about talking to people who have gone through buyouts is many of them talk about how isolating an experience it is. You feel really alone, even if there's lots of other people in your community who are going through similar things. And like Tramika, you have to basically become an expert in this really complicated process. And so we wanted to capture like the lessons and that expertise that you gain as a buyout participant and work that into our recommendations to improve buyouts for everyone. So I want to talk with you a bit about, as, as we wrap this up, some of the issues that were brought up. And I thought was really interesting is that a couple of the experts from the local governments that they talked about, you know, they have local programs for buyout and that has given them so much more flexibility because as you alluded to at the beginning, some of these federal funds, they're very difficult. They take a long time to implement or even spend. And so they've kind of avoided them altogether. You know, how does that play into your NRDC's policy development and I guess recommendations? Yeah, that's a great point. So we're kind of trying to do a couple of things here. One is we recognize that there's a lot more innovation and flexibility that can happen when you're not tied to using federal funds, like we heard about from Tim, right? However, not everybody can do that. Not every local government has the money or the capacity or the staff or the expertise to be able to fund their programs locally. And in that case, they're going to need to rely on this federal funding. So how can we make the federal programs better and more flexible so that the same kinds of things that Tim is doing locally, other people can do even though they're relying on federal funds? The idea of flexibility and finding different programs that work, that's great. But you're a national organization. And so this notion, like who really does have the deepest pockets since the federal government? So at the end of the day, they're still going to have to be a primary source for this. I guess this is to kind of give them food for thought about becoming more flexible. 
Yeah. So some of the things we're advocating for are changes to the grant programs that fund these buyouts. For example, ways that they can work more flexibly or provide funding for different kinds of activities. So they're not just so focused on buying and selling these properties, but sort of take a more holistic view of all the things people need when they're relocating. Other things that we're advocating for are a little bit more nebulous, and they have to do with this concept of local capacity. So it's one thing for a federal agency to give a grant to a local government And they say, basically, here's the money, go ahead and do your project. Well, as we all know, it's really hard to get that money in the first place. Then once you get it, you have to do a good project. And that takes a lot of planning and a lot of staff time and a lot of just expertise and kind of institutional memory to be able to do a really complicated and sensitive project like a home buyout. And so one of the things we're asking for is for federal agencies like FEMA to invest more in supporting local capacity building. So that could show up in things like supporting planning at a local level so that a local government can put more time in upfront before a disaster, planning for how they might help people relocate when a disaster hits. Okay. I'm just thinking off the cuff right now, but it occurred to me, I wonder if there's already existing model. You think of the Department of Education, they have a lot of block grants and like local schools have a lot of flexibility in what they can do. They have to meet some bare minimum standards, but a lot of the, a lot of that's just money that flows to these local governments. And it seems like some of these buyout programs could benefit from that hands-off approach. Yeah, that's a really great point. And so you're, you're pointing to like a really important aspect of the grants that fund buyouts most of the time, which are these grants from FEMA. And they're what we call competitive grants, which means that you have to apply for them. Like you have to propose a project, put in a really detailed funding application in order to get the money. We can contrast that with something like a block grant program, like you were just talking about, where there's a certain allocation of money that you can use for certain purposes. And in fact, there are block grant funding sources that can fund buyouts. For example, in HUD, the Agency for Housing and Urban Development, their community development block grant program for disaster recovery can and does fund buyouts. The problem there, however, is that that program doesn't have like a sustained source of funding. Basically, after a major disaster, Congress has to authorize the program to distribute the money. It doesn't have like a sustained authorization like a lot of annual federal programs do. And so it's a little bit of a trade-off because that also comes with its own challenges. So I had a chance to look at some of the notes that came from these workshops and they were fascinating. You had some reports and hopefully those will be available just like I put on the webpage for this episode. But one of the things talked about like these buyout programs, how difficult it can be for someone to move away from their community. There's this sort of social science aspect of it. And so even though you guys acknowledge that and it came up within those workshops, is this something that NRDC will actually get into the business of making recommendation? Because sometimes a lot of those things are lost. Here's your money. We're going to our home. But it's just like the idea of you know decoupling people from their community. That makes this that much harder, even if the program's functioning in so many, you know, if it's functioning really well. That's exactly right. That is a huge component of this kind of project that isn't always a consideration when we're thinking about other ways to protect folks against flood risk, right? You don't necessarily have the same considerations as if you were building some sort of, I don't know, levee or dam or something to protect people structurally against flooding. Moving away from your home and your community is a big deal. And it's not just about the money, right? Of course, you need enough money to be able to find a safer home someplace else. But there's so much else that goes into 
moving away from your community? Are you going to be able to find a place that's close to your job? Are your kids going to be able to stay in the same school? Are you going to be able to stay in touch with your neighbors? Is it going to be easy for you to get to the hospital when you have a doctor's appointment? All of these aspects of relocation are things that aren't necessarily considered in traditional buyout programs. They're not really things that the grants that we use for buyouts pay for. And so some of the things that we're advocating for are to make buyouts part of a more holistic climate adaptation and relocation strategy for a local area that takes these considerations into account and isn't so much about just like picking up someone like they're a game piece, right, on a board game board and plunking them down someplace else and saying like, everything is great now. You have to think about all of the other services and support that these people need and all of the other aspects of like what it means to be sort of transforming our communities in a climate changed future. In a previous conversation, you brought up the idea of holistic managed retreat. And we haven't really brought up managed retreat much, but it's buyouts are just a part of that broader approach to managed retreat. But what did you mean by holistic managed retreat? Yeah, that's a great question. And so a lot of the time when people talk about managed retreat, especially in the United States, the conversation is pretty narrow around buyouts. And we can understand why that is because buyouts are basically the primary tool that we have to move people out of harm's way, to help people relocate because of the effects of climate change. But buyouts in and of themselves are not managed retreat. In fact, I would think that buyouts can contribute to what we might call unmanaged retreat, right? They're not really part of a bigger system. And so when I think about holistic managed retreat, I'm thinking about everything else that goes into the process of making a safer community. What are all of the other things that community members need when they're relocating from point A to point B? And it's a little bit less about just moving away from something and more about moving towards something, both physically, because you're physically moving away from a risky place and to a less risky place, but also on a broader scale, like we're moving away from the way that we're used to our community being, right? We're moving away from the past, but we're moving towards hopefully something better in the future, something that is safer and more equitable for everyone. Fantastic. And so my listeners out there represent state governments, local governments, nonprofit organizations. And if they're interested in getting involved, they're thinking, all right, this might actually be good for our community. Is NRDC in the business of helping others do what you just did with these guys? Yeah, we would love to talk to you. If you are considering the possibility of buyouts in your state or your local area, or you work for an organization that interacts with the buyout process in some way or another, part of what we're trying to do with this work is just bring people together so that everyone's perspectives are on the table and so that everyone is connected to people who can provide them with ideas and support. And if you want to get involved, we really, really encourage you to get in touch with us. You can get in touch with me via our website at nrdc.org. Our project also has a really great webpage that our partners at the Climigration Network put together at climigration.org. And Doug, I'll give you those links so that you can put them in the show notes. We also have some written materials. We have a couple of reports and I hope that you'll take a look at them and then get in touch if you have any questions or other ideas. Okay, Anna, thanks for coming on the podcast and thanks to NRDC for partnering and sponsoring the episode. It's always a treat working with you guys. Thanks so much, Doug. It's always great to talk to you and to have an opportunity to share our work with your listeners.
Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Anna, Kristen, Shamika, Tramika, and Tim for participating in this episode. I'm very encouraged by what NRDC is trying to do here. Figuring out how to crack the bureaucratic code for buyouts will be critical in the years ahead when we'll see managed retreat and bigger demands for buyout programs. Jamaica's narrative was undeniably harrowing, yet her unwavering personal resilience in the face of home loss was nothing short of inspiring. Looking ahead to future climate impacts, we can expect many similar and tough housing decisions will have to be made. Let us learn from Tramika's experiences to enhance the efficiency and compassion of these programs. This is the mission that NRDC is championing. Also, local governments are essential laboratories for refining the functionality of these programs, as we've learned from the stories of Mary Carson Stiff from Wetlands Watch and Tim Troutman of North Carolina. And thanks to Kristen Marcel from Climigration Network and Shamika Hansen from the Nature Conservancy for their enlightening behind-the-scenes insight to the buyout workshops. There are a ton of links in the show notes, and presentations from those workshops are there. I encourage you to dig in. There's a lot more to find and learn about through that process. And finally, I want to thank NRDC for sponsoring and partnering with America Adapts to share this story of flooding buyouts. As you heard, we need to do better, and groups like NRDC are doing the hard work of finding effective policy approaches. And I also encourage my listeners out there who work in state and federal agencies, please reach out to folks like Anna at NRDC. As she mentioned, they are actively seeking partnerships, and numerous government entities share the objective of enhancing these buyout programs. Let's make that happen. Okay, Adapters. I just partnered with NRDC on this episode. Imagine the potential of showcasing your achievements through a widely acclaimed podcast that boasts a large network of climate and adaptation professionals. Yes, I'm talking about America Adapts and how it offers your company or organization the perfect platform to tell your adaptation story and spread your message to a diverse and highly influential audience of climate professionals. By sponsoring a whole episode, you not only have the chance to share your story with the world, but also integrate a podcast episode into your organization's long-term communication strategy. It's time to expand beyond the confines of webinars and white papers, which can be dry and forgettable. Let's work closely to identify the experts who best represent the remarkable work your organization is undertaking in adaptation through the power of podcast storytelling. This will not only enable effective communication with your members, board members, and funders, but also leave a lasting impact. The value of podcasts lies in their ability to continue promoting your story long after their initial release, ensuring it remains a critical educational resource for years to come. I'm humbled to have collaborated with prestigious partners such as Battelle, NRDC, UPenn Wharton, WWF, UCLA, Harvard University, the Trustees of Reservations, and many more. So let's add your organization or company to this list. Yes, we can make a significant difference in the world of climate change adaptation. To learn more about the enduring value of podcasts and how they benefit your company or organization, email me at americadaps at gmail.com. Also, if you are interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, reach out. I've been doing some keynote presentations. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences doing adaptation. Let me educate your audience on this emerging adaptation sector and how it differs from carbon mitigation and sustainability. Your companies and organizations, and especially your leadership, need to understand these differences in the years ahead. You can contact me at americadaps.org. And finally, as host of America Daps, I'm always eager to connect with my listeners and hear their feedback on the show. Whether you want to share your thoughts or suggest a guest you'd like to hear from, I'm open to it all. Your input not only helps me improve the show, but it also leads to exciting new opportunities. So please don't hesitate. Get in touch with me at americadaps at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.